Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. The death toll still on the rise in Libya after raging floods wash away thousands of lives and livelihoods. Officials are looking into whether the tragedy could have been prevented. Hunter Biden indicted on felony gun charges. It comes amid Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We have reaction from both sides of the aisle. Former President Trump speaking publicly about an upcoming impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Find out what he says. Will Trump have to go to trial with his co-defendants in late October? Find out what a judge ruled in the Georgia elections case. And are open border policies making us vulnerable to terrorists? Top experts are saying that it's a threat to national security. We start with the flooding in Libya. Officials confirm that at least 11,300 people are now dead. And that number could go much higher, as high as 20,000. As search and rescue continues, authorities are looking into whether human failings were to blame for the deadly tragedy. On Sunday, a powerful storm washed over the eastern Libyan city of Derna, causing two dams to collapse. A torrent was suddenly unleashed into the residential neighborhoods, washing away sleeping families trapped inside their homes. The United Nations Weather and Climate Agency said that the tragedy could have been prevented with better warning systems in place. As of now, thousands are still missing and tens of thousands of survivors are now homeless. With bodies continuing to surface on the shore and frequent mass burials, the true death toll is uncertain. Now, some fear that an outbreak of disease is looming over the city due to so many corpses under the rubble. Federal prosecutors have indicted Hunter Biden on gun charges. It comes after his plea deal fell apart at the last minute. And while House Republicans are seeking bank records from the Biden family through an impeachment inquiry into the president, NTD's Iris Tao has more from Capitol Hill. This is the first time in U.S. history that the Justice Department has filed charges against the son of a sitting U.S. president. Hunter Biden is accused of lying about using drugs when buying a gun in 2018. And now he's facing up to 25 years in prison if he's convicted of all criminal counts in his indictment. Democratic lawmakers told us today that they think today's development shows that the DOJ is fair. Uh, the Justice Department will uh, do its will. I think that this shows that we have a, um, a judicial system that is treating people equally. But former President Trump, who was also indicted by the DOJ, today criticized that the gun charge is the only crime by Hunter Biden that does not implicate Joe Biden. And some Republican lawmakers told us today just came out Nothing today. Nothing surprises me that he does illegal. I wish it had been, been uncovered four years ago. And ironically, that's the one crime that he committed that you cannot tie Joe Biden into. Where are the charges on human sex trafficking, uh, FARA charges, money laundering? Hunter Biden's indictment comes after his plea deal fell apart in July amid scrutiny by House Republicans. It also comes right after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy just this week launched an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. The House Democrats today criticized. There is no evidence not a shred of evidence that President Biden engaged in wrongdoing. But McCarthy insists that President Biden could be involved. We do know that he went to meetings, and when he went to these dinners, the son got a new Porsche. He got more than $3 million. 
Meanwhile, Republican Congressman James Comer and Ralph Norman told me today that they don't think today's indictment of Hunter Biden would have any effect on the ongoing impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Representative Nancy Pelosi is endorsing President Biden's re-election bid as others raise concerns about his age and health. Here's the former House Speaker in an exclusive interview with CNN. Look, even among very loyal Democrats, there's a lot of concerns about, about the president. Is he the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump, the best candidate to defeat any of the Republicans who are, are running right now? I think so. Uh, pre uh, yes. Uh, President, uh, President Biden has, um, he has great experience and wisdom. He's been at this for a long time, as you know, as a senator, vice president, and now president. While there may be some concerns, everybody's for him. Overwhelmingly, everybody's for him. Asked whether she thinks there is a chance the president would withdraw from the race, Pelosi said, I hope not. Cooper then asks Pelosi if she thinks Harris is the best running mate for Biden. Here's her answer. Is Vice President Kamala Harris the best running mate for this president? He thinks so, and that's what matters. Do you think she is the, the best running mate, though? She's the vice president of the United States. So when people say to me, well, why isn't she doing this or that? I said, because she's the vice president. That's the job description. Former President Trump is commenting on the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Here's what he told journalist Megyn Kelly in an interview on her show yesterday. He's a horrible president. Our country is going to hell. Uh, whether it's impeachment or not impeachment, this man is destroying our country at the border. He's destroying it economically. Inflation's way up now. You see what happened just today. Uh, that's up to them if they want to do impeachment or impeachment inquiry. I didn't ever, never had an inquiry. Nancy Pelosi, crazy Nancy, said, we're going to impeach him. They didn't do inquiries. They went out and they voted because they had the votes. And as usual, everybody... The House didn't go through the inquiry process for Trump's second impeachment just days before he left office, but did before his first one. And you can watch the full interview with Megyn Kelly on her YouTube channel. A new development in the Georgia RICO case against former President Trump and 18 others. A judge rules that not all defendants need to be tried together. The Fulton County judge allowed Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell to have different trial dates from the others and said that more defendants could follow. Chesborough and Powell are the only defendants to request a speedy trial, which is set to begin on October 23rd. Now the other defendants, including Trump, don't have to be tried as early with them. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis sought to try all defendants together. She argued that breaking the case into multiple trials would strain the local judicial system. But Judge Scott McAfee today said that not breaking the defendants into separate trials would strain the system. He said the Fulton County Courthouse doesn't have a courtroom large enough to hold 19 defendants, their multiple attorneys and support staff, the sheriff's deputies, court personnel, and the state's prosecutorial team. He also said relocating the trial to a larger venue raises security concerns. And to sort out the many logistical challenges in the Georgia case, which involves 19 defendants and 41 charges, we spoke with a former federal prosecutor, now a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me on. 
To begin, a judge has denied Fannie Willis's request to try all 19 defendants together in the Georgia elections case. To begin, what does this severing of cases mean? How will this play out? Well, what it basically means is that two of the defendants, two former attorneys who worked for President Trump's uh, re-election efforts, are going to go first, essentially. They're going to, they've asked, they've demanded uh, for their trials to occur speedily, as is their right under Georgia law. And so their trials will proceed right now. It's scheduled for the end of October, uh, which will likely be before any other trials for any other defendants in this Georgia case take place. Now, the judge is saying severing these cases is procedural. He's also noting the logistics of having 19 people there. But Fannie Willis says trying all 19 together is procedural since the case ties them together. Help us understand what this means. Well, look, this is a very sprawling case. There were 41 counts in this indictment against 19 different defendants. And anyone who's ever prosecuted a case or defended one of these big criminal conspiracy type cases will tell you this is going to be a very difficult case to try just from a logistical perspective. Not only do you have 19 defendants, uh, it's estimated that there could be upwards of 150 witnesses brought in this case. Fannie Willis and her office is estimating that the trial will take about four months to complete. Uh, I suspect it will take longer than that. And so what Fannie Willis is essentially saying is that keeping all 19 defendants together will be more logistically uh, easy for the court and for her office. Now, the judge has disagreed. Uh, I think the judge is right here that trying 19 defendants together is likely to be very difficult. But uh, this does place Fannie Willis's office in a somewhat more difficult position uh, because now they are going to have to try essentially the same case multiple times. And now Fannie Willis has called for Trump to appear on trial on March 4th of next year, but that's when he's expected to be in a federal court for a January 6th case. And that's also around Super Tuesday, around election season. How do you see these legal cases playing into the 2024 election season? Well, I think we have to wait and see what happens. I think it's certainly uh, causing, uh, you know, Donald Trump, uh, other Republican nominees, as well as the lawyers and judges involved to have to carefully look at the schedules. Again, it's not only Donald Trump's schedule that has to be taken into consideration, but also the schedule of the judges, the court staff, the schedule of the witnesses, the schedule of the lawyers. And so from a lot of perspectives, uh, we are in really uncharted territory here where we not only have a former president who has been indicted, but a leading contender for the Republican nomination who is currently facing indictment as well. Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. The current border policies could be making the U.S. vulnerable to terrorists. Top experts are saying that it's a threat to national security. NTD's Jason Perry covers an important hearing on this very issue. The House Judiciary Committee on Thursday took a closer look at how terrorists may be entering the U.S. through the southwest border. Representative Tom McClintock started off by saying illegal immigration has increased significantly since President Biden took office in January 2021. Since that day, more than 5.7 million illegal aliens from over 160 countries have illegally crossed our border. 
Mr. Biden has released over 2.6 million of them. And he highlighted the lack of a proper vetting process of these individuals. Now, since we have no access to most foreign criminal databases, we know little of the foreign criminal records of these 2.6 million illegal immigrants as they've been released into our communities. And of course, we know nothing of the 1.7 million gotaways. The number of people caught at the border who are on the terrorist watch list has also increased significantly since Biden took office, from just three in fiscal year 2020 to 146 in 2023. A former senior law enforcement officer at DHS added this. With almost 200 migrants on the terror watch list, which have been apprehended while trying to sneak across the border, the natural question is, so how many on that list have made it in? Representative Jerry Nadler gave his take on it. I'm sure that my Republican colleagues will do their best to scare people into believing that the next 9-11 is just around the corner. But the fact remains that there has never been a successful attack planned by someone who illegally crossed our southwest border. This point was echoed by one of the witnesses who Representative Chip Roy questioned. Prior to September 11th, 2001, how many individuals had flown airplanes into the World Trade Center and killed 3,000 people? Uh, zero. The chance of dying from a foreign-born terrorist attack since 1975 I'm is sure one in 4.4 sure million per Mr. year. Mr. Narasta, I'm sure that is great comfort to the families of the people from 9-11. Because when you sit here and testify that zero people have committed a terrorist attack from crossing our border, I'm sure that is comfort to the people who had terrorist attacks committed by people who came here and overstayed their visas. Todd Benzman, senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, shared his concerns on the border. The recent development of FARC-related uh, terror watch-listed suspects crossing that border, those are people who have spent years and years involved in murder, kidnapping, drug trafficking, extortion, bombings, they are experts in weaponry whole lives. We're going to be hearing a lot about FARC people over the next decade. And here in New York City, illegal immigrants continue to arrive by bus. Not only are they not being vetted properly, but New York City Mayor Eric Adams said the issue could destroy the city. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. Former South Carolina attorney and convicted murderer Alex Murdoch is back in court again. He appeared publicly today for the first time since his murder trial. Murdoch appeared at a state court hearing on charges related to financial crimes. Murdoch has been indicted for taking close to $9 million in legal settlements from his clients and stealing nearly $7 million from his law firm. He faces an additional nine counts of tax evasion. Other charges relate to an alleged drug ring and money laundering scheme. Murdoch was found guilty in March for killing his wife and son. He is currently serving a life sentence without parole. A federal hearing over theft and wire fraud charges is scheduled for next Thursday. Coming up, did the government's COVID response help or hurt the doctor-patient relationship? The question divided medical professionals and lawmakers at a hearing today. Researching COVID-19 is not allowed. New social media platform Threads prohibits searches related to the virus, deeming it sensitive content. And the government has become extremely comfortable with lying to us, says journalist Michael Schellenberger. He tells the Senate committee what he's found. We'll have these stories and more after the break.
Welcome back. Did the government's COVID response help or hurt the doctor-patient relationship? A House subcommittee heard both sides of the issue at a hearing earlier today. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details. Coercive policies or life-saving measures. Did strict COVID policies interfere with physicians' ability to give patients the treatment of their choice? Or were they the best hope for saving lives? Physicians on Thursday told the subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic about their experiences in treating patients during the pandemic. Some said the protocols made it harder to timely treat different types of diseases, such as appendicitis and cancer. Others felt the strict COVID measures prevented them from offering alternative methods of treatment that ultimately worked and interfered with the doctor-patient relationship. I was pro-vaccine. I was as anxious and I was one of the first people to get the vaccine in my county. At, I'm twice vaccinated and once boosted. But when they started refusing to uh, acknowledge nat natural immunity post-infection, I, I, it was a red flag for me. And I've always maintained, and I've, I've made this very public, that, that it, it's, between, it's an individual decision between the patient and their medical care provider. Dr. Andy Shane, an infectious disease physician, said doctors had several opportunities to communicate with their patients to ensure they understood why strict measures were needed. Desperate times calls for desperate measures, and the vaccine uh, requirements were the optimal way to enhance that. Lawmakers were also divided on the issue. Representative Jill Takuda, a Democrat, said the COVID protocol saved millions of lives. I find it very... Um distracting to the real work at hand. We are literally in the middle right now of a COVID surge, not just in our country, but here in the halls of Congress. We need to focus on the best practices, how we're gonna keep people safe going forward, how are we gonna make sure that our kids can continue to go into school. And these kinds of discussions are highly destructive. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican, said doctors like panelist Dr. Jerry Williams were saving lives with alternative treatments. He says he treated 5,500 COVID patients. Only five of them were hospitalized and zero died. But his protocols were the protocols that, that the CDC, that the mainstream media and many Democrats mocked and made fun of, such as ivermectin, such as hydroxychloroquine, and a protocol that did, did not include uh, forced vaccinations. Arlene Richards, NTD News. A new social media platform prohibits searches about COVID-19. Mark Zuckerberg confirmed that his new threads doesn't allow searches for what he calls sensitive content. Mark Zuckerberg's new social media platform, Threads, is facing criticism. That's for reportedly blocking search results for terms related to the pandemic. Users are upset that their search on Threads for content related to COVID and vaccines was met with a blank screen. The Washington Post reports that a pop-up instead redirects users to the website of the CDC. Tech CEO Michael Robertson commented, writing, Zuck treats users like children. He gets to decide what they will see and talk about. Thread's parent company, Meta, confirmed its search policy restrictions in a statement. The search functionality temporarily doesn't provide results for keywords that may show potentially sensitive content. The company says people will be able to search for those keywords in the future, quote, once we are confident in the quality of the results. Not only COVID-related searches are restricted, terms related to sexual content are reportedly being blocked as well. Public health experts say they don't like the policy either. And the director of science communication at Columbia University commented, censorship doesn't work. Misinfo still gets circulated by code names and other platforms. 
tech companies should invest in real solutions like moderation or education. Threads saw 100 million new users five days after its launch this summer. However, time spent on the app has since fallen sharply. The government has become extremely comfortable with lying to us. That's a quote from journalist Michael Schellenberger that came up today in a congressional hearing. Schellenberger went into detail on the abuses he sees in what he called the censorship industrial complex. NTD's Fake Order has more. The government has become extremely comfortable with lying to us. Just explain what you mean by that. Journalist Michael Schellenberger testified Thursday at a Senate hearing on government censorship. He said he clearly sees many abuses of power from many executive agencies. We don't have government agencies. We don't have uh, cutouts or front groups that appear to have support from those agencies telling the American people what's true, what's false, or telling social media companies behind the scenes what they should be censoring. Schellenberger brought up instances of executive agencies ordering social media firms to censor certain content, even threatening them if they didn't. He cited these examples. The White House demanding information on vaccine side effects be taken down, even if the information were true. The FBI reportedly paying analysts to say COVID didn't come from a lab, after the analysts concluded that it did and the FBI paying Twitter millions of dollars to take down certain COVID-related content. I hear a lot of talk about how to protect the public from harm. What people are saying is that we need to censor speech, censor certain voices, censor disfavored voices because of this idea that it will cause real-world harm. This is a well-documented phenomenon that psychologists have measured where over decades, people have just grossly expanded their definition of things that cause harm. Schellenberger said he believes there should be a reset and that free speech must be absolute, with only a few exceptions. We have absolute, complete disagreement on the First Amendment. I don't think there's one Senate Democrat that has criticized uh, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security meeting on a regular basis uh, to discuss taking down speech, even true speech. Republican Senator Rand Paul emphasized that these executive agencies have threatened the social media companies. He said they threatened to repeal Section 230 to impose antitrust rules and to inform the president of disobedience. And all of the social media companies complied. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, NASA says there's no proof UAPs have extraterrestrial origins. The agency dismisses most UFO sightings, saying people often mistake something mundane for a mysterious object. A California school is banned from flying the pride flag. The board voted to only allow the U.S. and California flags. And governments around the world are reportedly handcuffing farmers. An upcoming documentary hears from farmers across the globe and explores how government policies could cause serious famine. Details on this and more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Federal prosecutors have indicted Hunter Biden on felony gun charges. The president's son is accused of owning a gun while being addicted to drugs in 2018. Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, two of the defendants in the Georgia RICO case, severed their October trial from the rest of the defendants. The others, including former President Trump, don't have to be tried as early as them. 
Over 11,300 people are now believed to have died from the massive flood in Libya. Another 10,000 people remain missing. NASA today downplaying sightings of unidentified anomalous phenomena or UAPs. The agency says people mostly mistake sightings of everyday objects for flying saucers. Here are the highlights from today's press conference. We, NASA, have taken for the first time concrete action to seriously look into UAP. NASA on Thursday published this study on unidentified anomalous phenomena or UAP, better known as UFOs. The study began in July of last year, and now, over a year later, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson announced, The NASA independent study team did not find any evidence that UAP have an extraterrestrial origin. But we don't know what these UAP are. In its report, NASA set the tone for its findings by showing this picture of a rare type of lighting at the top of the report indicating UAP sightings might have mundane explanations. The chair of the study team behind the report commented during Thursday's press conference. Most events are going to turn out to be conventional things, balloons, airplanes. NASA says they'll keep studying UAP and are calling on pilots, civilians and others to report any credible sightings. That's to get rid of the stigma surrounding the topic. Furthermore, the administrator on Thursday announced that NASA has appointed a NASA director of UAP research. He says the director will work with other agencies to analyze UAP, use modern AI technology for research, and more. In California, chaos erupted at another school board meeting as members vote to prevent special interest flags being flown on school grounds, including the pride flag. NTD's David Lamb reports. You are That was a scene at the Suno Glen Unified School District board meeting on Tuesday night as two out of three board members voted to allow the district to only fly the U.S. and California flags on their campuses. The board shut down the meeting due to interruptions as people were heated over the LGBTQ pride flag. This is about civility and discourse. Please, keep it under control. I know people are emotional. A lot of us are, and a lot of us are keeping it in control. Some attendees say the most inclusive flag is the U.S. flag. The board president and a board member were also concerned that potential lawsuits could financially and legally harm the district. And because of that, I would be voting in favor of of adopting this resolution, which does not exclude the, the welcoming and nurturing, hopefully inclusive and acceptance of each of these students in our school district. And we are small school district. There's nothing to prevent any individual from suing a school district. That's just a reality. You will have that regardless of whether you are perfect or not. That can happen. That's America. Board President Ryan Jurgensen stated, My concern is that when a school starts endorsing any particular view that can be divisive, then the school is failing its mission. During the divided public comment, some argue that the pride flag makes LGBTQ students feel safe. Showing kindness is of utmost importance to us, and that means welcoming all students coming from diverse backgrounds, being inclusive to all, and making sure that all of our students are respected and feel safe. 
while some have another point of view. I hear truly worried that some students feel alienated. Bring them together through art or sports or other activities. Volunteer. And if you see a warning sign, talk to the parent or try harder to include the student in activities. Do something to really help. Don't just try to appear as if you're helping. In the end, the resolution passed and only the U.S. and California flags are allowed on Sunil Glen campuses. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Farmers around the world are facing specific dilemmas that threaten production, often stemming from environmental policies. Could this actually lead to famine? We spoke with the host and director of the upcoming epic original documentary, No Farmers, No Food. Roman Bamakov, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tiffany. Great to be here. So, Roman, your documentary, No Farmers, No Food, is coming out soon. What inspired you to start on this project? Mm. Well, um, you know, my, my job, I assume, is a lot very similar to yours. I'm always scouting for good new stories, new threads to kind of pull at. And in the beginning part of last year, uh, 2022, uh, after the Ukraine-Russia war already kicked off, which was uh, February 24th of 2022, after that period of time, uh, there was already talks of global food problems happening, right? Many politicians around the world, even uh, Joe Biden here in America, were warning of global food crises coming. That was sort of like the, the backdrop of what was happening around the world. I started to see these protests of farmers uh, popping up in different countries, uh, in Europe, uh, in Asia, in India, Sri Lanka, uh, even even um, uh, here in North America and Canada, uh, in, in various countries. And so I was I assumed it was it had something to do with U Ukraine, Russia. So I'm like, OK, that makes sense. But then uh, the one in ne the Netherlands really caught my eye and I began to dig into it. My team actually went over there. My team and I went over there to uh, to speak with the farmers, to speak with the local representatives who would actually you know speak with us. And what we found was that the farmers were protesting not the general climate and the war. They were protesting the policies being enacted by their own governments, which were forcing something like 40 percent of them out of business. And so I, like that, I couldn't believe that at first. I thought there was something I there was some kind of a misunderstanding. But we kept digging, uh, digging into it and pulling at that thread. And it was true. It, it was true. It, like basically governments around the world were handcuffing their farmers, even though there's a real potential of a global food crisis. They were handcuffing their farmers uh, in order to supposedly save the planet, right? It was it was the result of a lot of these green policies that were coming down from the uh, international level, from the UN, and getting sort of osmoted into different uh, into different governments. They manifest differently in different countries, but they all kind of can be traced back to the UN, which is what we found in, in the course of our investigation. And so that was sort of the first few months. Uh, and then I spoke to my managing editor, and I'm like, hey, listen, like I think this can be a, a larger investigation. I think we should really uh, pull of these threads and and see where this goes, and we did. It, it took us about a year, and um, we're able to really map out uh, how how this plays out and how essentially Agenda 21, right? The UN's agenda for the 21st century. It's sort of like their master plan for the next 100 years, and the result is like it, it's a it's a real crippling effect on the farmers, on not just in Europe, not just in Asia, but right here in America as well. Roman, you mentioned groups like the UN and other organizations. From what you found, what is our future going to look like then? What is our future going to look like? Well, Tiffany, it's one of two options. It's either light or it's very dark, very, very dark. Um, that's what I'm not exactly sure. I mean, wh what I hope to do with this documentary 
is to expose what's happening and to sort of equip people with the facts and the knowledge and, and the sort of a, the language that they can use to identify what's happening and reframe the conversation. So, so you're very familiar, obviously, with what what's happening and what happened in China. Great Leap Forward is the famine that killed 30 to 50 million Chinese people, right? That's automatically what people understand it to be. But if you go back in time, and let's say you go right before the Great Leap Forward was implemented or in the early years of its implementation, and you ask someone, well, what is the Great Leap Forward? They bought into the propaganda, or not even the propaganda, like the forward thinking, like idealized version of it, they will be like, it's the Great Leap Forward. It's in the name. It's a great, it's, it's gonna propel our society. It's gonna leapfrog our society into the future. And it's like, that sounds great, right? But it's, it wasn't, it was a disaster. It, but you can only see that in hindsight. And so likewise, I, I equate what's happening now to the Green Leap Forward. It sounds great on paper. You know, you want to save the planet. Um, you you want to save society. You want to save the air, make it as clean as possible. You want to save the oceans, etc. But in the process, you might actually lead to massive starvation on a global scale. And I, what I want to avoid is that 100 years from now, we'll look back in this period and go, yeah, the that was that was rough. You know, Agenda 2030, not, you know, you would think like, oh, the famine of 2030 or something like that. So that's what I'm trying to help avoid with this documentary. And expanding on that, you mentioned you traveled to the Netherlands to speak with farmers and other people on the ground. What was your biggest takeaway while filming this? Mm. Well, I, I guess I have two big takeaways. Um, well, maybe three. One is that if you have some agreement between governments or you have agreement at, you know, between the, the local government and some uh, you know, international international affiliate, like uh, there's a group called ICLEI, I-C-L-E-I, which is the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. They're the group that essentially takes the UN initiatives and sort of helps implement them at the local level. I always thought like, okay, so you sign these pieces of paper, that's not going to really impact my actual life, right? That's like, just a piece of paper, it doesn't matter. But then when I was traveling, I saw how these like just, pol you know, political documents, these agreements that were enacted 20, 30 years ago that people were like, ah, whatever, you know, sure, sign this thing, protect nature, doesn't matter. 30 years from now, it's like, well, no, far the farmers now are having to actually implement, well, feel the implementation of those earlier documents and lose their land. Um, the second takeaway is that in Western countries, very often it, well, I believe it's not going to be felt as hard as quick. Uh, even if, let's say, the Netherlands, as, as one example, even the U.S., loses a lot of our farmers, a lot of them are forced off their land, uh, there's enough capacity here, there's enough excess that we, no, nobody's going to go starving. Like, likely the food in the store shelves will be more expensive, likely there'll be some items missing, but no, it, likely, ho luckily, people won't be starving. But in other countries, like we travel to Sri Lanka, like, th that's rough. The president there, uh, he, he had uh, certain U.N. groups had his ear. And overnight, he banned synthetic fertilizer, just overnight. Just one day, he went on air and said, that's it, the, the use of synthetic fertilizer in this country is illegal. Uh, and that destroyed the economy. The third takeaway was that we would travel around to these rural areas and speak with the farmers, and they would tell us their plight. They would be very specific, like, these are these are the government's demands. This is how they're implementing them. I'm, I'm giving you the example of the Netherlands. But if you go into the city and you ask young people, it's like, what's happening with the farmers? They're like, I don't know. They have no idea what's actually happening. And I feel like, unfortunately, uh, it'll be too late when they realize when they go to the store and it's like either empty or the price, you know, they pick up a price of a, uh, they pick up a hamburger patty and it's like $47, you know, per pound. And it's like, yikes. So those are my three big takeaways. Roman Balmakov, thank you so much for your time. 
to watch or learn more about Roman's fascinating documentary, visit nofarmersnofood.com. This epic original documentary will premiere on Epic TV on September 25th. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to Epic TV to access this and other original documentaries, news and lifestyle shows, movies, and other great content. And coming up, is artificial turf to blame for Aaron Rodgers' injury? The NFL Players Association strongly hinted so. So we hear from a sports doctor. And Hollywood's iconic sign turns 100. Visitors celebrated with a hiking tour to see the sign up close and personal. We'll have details when we come back. Welcome back. In sports news, was Aaron Rodgers' Achilles injury avoidable? The NFL Players Association has hinted so while calling for stadiums to use grass fields instead of turf. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The trajectory of the New York Jets season was significantly altered Monday night as just minutes into their game against Buffalo, quarterback Aaron Rodgers was lost for the season and possibly his career when he tore his Achilles tendon. His loss alone dropped the Jets from 16 to 1 Super Bowl odds at Caesars Sportsbook all the way down to 35 to 1. Meanwhile, the Jets, who were three point underdogs at Dallas for week two, fell to 7.5 immediately after Rodgers' injury. With so much depending on the availability of their best players, anything a team can do to keep them safe from injury would seem to be worth it. Yet the Jets play on a turf field as opposed to grass which not only has drawn the ire of the NFLPA, even the American Journal of Sports Medicine has previously weighed in with a six-year study completed in 2018 that showed significantly higher non-direct contact injury rates on turf surfaces versus grass. One of the, I guess, perceived benefits of turf is that it's softer, or it's, at least feels like it's softer with the pellets. Um, rubber pellets or what have you that are kind of embedded into the artificial grass. Dr. Rami Hashish is a doctor of physical therapy and a biomechanics consultant who's hired by sports teams to determine ways to prevent injury. He says that the softer give on turf doesn't mask the bigger problem on the surface, which surprisingly is too much traction, resulting in longer contact with the ground. So if we think of this, the body now is moving relative to the foot, which is basically stationary on the ground. So it commonly results in more non-contact injuries, such as the ACL and Achilles, because basically the foot is more in contact attributed to that greater traction. Hashish says the best recommendation for athletes is to get a biomechanical analysis of how they run and cut on turf, and then to get custom orthotics as well as custom cleats. That's the number one bet with regards to the knee. Certainly wearing a brace is always helpful um, from an injury prevention perspective. The problem is that it may actually affect performance. Now currently half of the 32 teams in the NFL play their home games on grass fields, which according to sportsvenuecalculator.com are known to be about half as expensive to install, yet cost three to four more times to maintain, and even more if the stadium is used for events year round. It's certainly more convenient to have turf, but if it comes at the player's expense and the product is what's on the field, it's probably not worth it in the long run. 
Now, Rodgers, who contemplated retirement in the offseason, is technically signed through 2025, though there are no guarantees how he'll perform next season at age 40. I'm Dave Martin for NTD News. As a legendary landmark celebrates its centennial milestone, it proudly commands the spotlight, captivating the gaze of thousands who admire its iconic letters. NTD's Christina Corona has more from Hollywood Hills. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the iconic Hollywood sign, a symbol of glamour and entertainment recognized all over the world. Standing proudly in the Hollywood Hills, this landmark has witnessed a century of history, fame, and transformation. Originally established in 1923 as a real estate advertisement for the Hollywoodland housing development, the sign featured 13 massive letters, each standing 30 feet wide and 50 feet tall. At night, it dazzled onlookers with thousands of sparkling light bulbs, slashing holly and wood sequentially, making it a nighttime attraction in its own right. In 1949, the sign underwent a significant change when the land portion was removed, simplifying it to just Hollywood and broadening its representation to encompass the entire entertainment industry. The Hollywood Sign Trust manages and maintains the sign, while the city of Los Angeles owns it. Today, the sign stands tall, with each letter measuring 45 feet in height, spanning a total of 350 feet. We spoke to several sightseers who told us why they chose to see the iconic sign. The Hollywood sign in, from movies and stuff, it's quintessential LA. And yeah, I feel like as an Australian, it's everybody who comes to America, it's you come to see the Hollywood sign. It's like going to Paris and not seeing the Eiffel Tower. If you don't come to LA and see the Hollywood sign. Totally. It's a piece of history. It's something you definitely want to come and see when you're here in LA. And I still remember the, the movie 2012. 2012. So I say that volcano come from the behind and the Hollywood sign is super cool. So that's why I was, yeah, that's why I was the reason why I'm quite here today. As the sign celebrates its 100th year, it continues to symbolize the appeal of the Hollywood dream, enchanting the world with its timeless charm. Christina Corona, NTD News, Hollywood. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.